it's like you're in a low budget play and you hear about all the action through this single character but you're not out there because no one has the money to build the sets for it so you just all have to experience it through this one person like receiving letters from the outside oh the war is going on and yeah I've, this has been my office it's been whatever venue I've put it as it's been a podcast studio. It's been a funeral parlor because I've been I went to a Zoom funeral recently. It's like all in this one space. Hello and welcome to Freelance Pod. My name's Sachandrika and I'll be your host. So yeah, it's been quite a while since I said those words. Um, I haven't made an episode of Freelance Pod since last summer, the height of the lockdown. And to be honest, for a little while, I didn't know what the future of the podcast would be. I did say on social media that I was thinking of closing it down. But I've had a change of heart. And I think it goes along with me understanding the pivot that's recently happened in my career. So to go back a bit and give you some context. In January 2020, do you remember that? It was 500 years ago. I did a stand-up comedy course at the Bill Murray Pub in Islington in London. And trying out comedy was something I'd always wanted to do, but had perhaps not given myself permission to, had told myself that I didn't have time for a hobby and, and all of this stuff. Where would it go? What would it even do for me? Um, but I think podcasting itself had really convinced me to give it a try. And so I did this course, it was six weeks long, and it was it was great, I really enjoyed it. And we had to do a show at the end of it, five minute long set, in the Bill Murray, which has two rooms, one which is a bar and one which is like a proper like New York comedy club basement. And uh, yeah, I did did my set and it was really fun. And the video of that set led me into some competitions, helped me get some work. And in a year that's been quite bad for live comedy and been really tough on comedians who make most of their livelihood from comedy, I did find some few little spaces here and there to, to kind of edge in as a complete newbie. And I've really enjoyed all of that. And another thing that I found about comedy and the industry is that comedians are very friendly and really generous and the beauty of social media and zoom and various things like the angel comedy gym and uh, and other events run by funny women and other groups the beauty of those is that you can still meet people even during the pandemic and get to know people and uh, that is how i've met today's guest on this episode i'll introduce in a minute and so the pandemic and the lockdown has had its effect on my career and what I'm interested in and I've decided to bring back the podcast with a sort of comedy focused angle I'll be interviewing comedians and trying to learn more about the industry as I go along so hopefully you're up for hearing those sorts of episodes and uh, yeah as always like feedback is welcome the social media is always the same and uh, the newsletter's still going it's called Writing by Moonlight now, and it's on button-down email. So if you've not noticed that change and you want to subscribe, it's button-down, so the word button and down, all in one word, dot email forward slash Sachandrika, my first name. So button-down dot email forward slash Sachandrika. My newsletter has migrated there. I've moved away from Substack. And um, yeah, love to hear your feedback. And I've got some exciting comedy news of my own as well. So for the first time in my life, I am taking a solo one hour long show to a fringe. Um, I'm going to Brighton and Camden fringes this year. So my dates at Brighton are the 8th and 9th of June, which is about a month away. I'm on at 6.45pm each day at the Caxton Arms. 
And the show is called I Miss Amy Winehouse. So it's it's about that, because I do. It's 10 years since she died, and uh, that seems a ridiculous amount of time. And so we really go back to the noughties and to Camden at that period, and we see what I was up to working in Camden and, and partying there as well, hoping that I would bump into Amy, which I never did. Or did I? You'll have to see the show to find out. So that'll be a work in progress at Brighton. I'm hoping to find some slots in London to work on the work in progress in June and July. And then first week of August, the 3rd to the 7th, the show will be at the Camden Fringe. I've got a space at the Etc. Theatre, which is um, above a pub on Camden High Street. It's like one of your classic black box theatres in Camden. Um, and that'll be a bit more of a theatrical show, um, with more visuals and props and things planned for that one. So, yeah, I hope you can come along to one of those. I'll put all the details in the show notes as ever. And I'm excited and daunted and I need to get writing ASAP. <laughs> so on to this episode's guest, we have Vix Layton. So Vix is a PR and in the last few years she took up comedy and she's also a comedy promoter running her own nights and she even has her own podcast, The Comedy Arcade. And this is like a panel show where she invites on three other comedians and they compete to tell the most outrageous story about a certain subject in three rounds. And it is such a funny podcast. I met Vix through a Funny Women um, event online and got to know her over social media and, and through chatting this pod. And she's just got such a positive, like, if you don't ask, you don't get kind of attitude to life. So a no won't kill you, as she says. Always try, always go for it. And yeah, she's got loads of great advice around comedy, around self-promotion. We laughed a lot through this. Here's Vic Slayton. I'm Vic Slayton. I am a senior content marketer by day and a comedian, promoter and podcaster in all the other hours. I um, started doing comedy because I wanted to get over a fear of public speaking. So I never had any ambitions to do comedy or as far as I knew, I didn't have any ambitions to do comedy. I was sick of going to conferences and complaining about all the male speakers, but then being too chicken to speak myself. I never put myself forward when I was occasionally asked, I turned it down. I always had a good reason, but the reason was I was really scared. (laughs) Proper. Psychosomatic symptom, triggering, scared. I could make myself sick before standing in front of a company update just out of the anxiety of it so I needed to get over that I wanted to be the change that I was demanding in the world Uh, so I did this funny women course it was like a half day course called stand up to stand out and it was basically geared towards if you're interested in comedy or also if you want to use more aspects of comedy in your workplace or get a bit more confidence so I thought this looks like a bit of me this looks not too scary. And it was expensive enough that I thought I wouldn't dismiss it on the morning, but not so expensive that if I did find I couldn't do it, I would be really, really annoyed with myself. So it was like, yeah, exactly what I needed in the right place at the right time. So that's how all of this sort of dual career, I think I'm glorifying it, calling it two careers. Oh, I don't (laughs) think so. No. But um, yeah, so I did the course and at the end of it, I was no less scared, really, but I pushed myself and I hadn't died and I'd really enjoyed it. So I'd enjoyed the little tasks that I'd done. I'd enjoyed putting on the performance and I used to be a real show off. I used to love that. And somewhere along the line, it stopped and I, I never 
worked out. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. I've never worked out where that stopped. Like when it became something that I didn't want to do and that escalated like Japanese knotweed, something that I physically felt incapable of doing. I, there was no big moment. I didn't stand on a rostrum to make a speech and my trousers fell down. I genuinely, I have no idea how that happens. And I guess it's the nature of mental health. You'll never know. It might not even have anything to do with public speaking. It might be a kind of rich mix of other things. But I tweeted about it. That's what I like to do when I need to be held to account. I throw <laughs> I throw it out to the Twitter universe and make it everybody's problem. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Mark Watson tweeted back, the comedian, and he was doing a 26-hour show. And he said, do you want to learn stand-up over 26 hours for charity? Are you really serious about getting over this? I'll help you. And yeah, I did. I went and did it and it was scary and it was uh, it pushed my comfort zones in a lot of ways because I'm not somebody who prior to comedy would have even gone to the cinema on my own. I don't know what it is. I just wasn't somebody who was ever comfortable. I, I would never, before it became something that I did in work, I'd never take myself to the pub and have a drink on my own. I would be the person that would wait outside until a friend arrived to walk in until I started doing PR because I was just quite a socially anxious person. But um yeah, committing to 26 hours in my own company in a room full of strangers didn't sound like something I'd ever be able to do. And then when I came out of that day and I'd done that as well, then I felt like, well, the the world is my oyster. It was like another path that kind of dimly lit up like a computer game. But it was something I wanted to pursue. And I thought it'll be a great thing to have an interest alongside my job that can take me away from that. And maybe it'll mean I'll finish work on time because I have to finish work on time because I've got a solid plan. I've got somewhere I have to be. So but how did the 26 hours work? Did they let you sleep? Well, <laughs> technically, like this is like Mark Watson's thing. He does these long shows yeah. and it's almost like a exercise in pushing yourself to the limit. So yeah. most of the people in the room did attempt to stay up for the full 24 hours. So it was from nine o'clock at night through to I think 11 o'clock the day after in the in the evening and it's something that it's become it's it's got its own following so a lot of the people that were at that show had done four or five or six or all of the others so it became it was an endurance exercise but they were all in on it and there was something really fun about doing that about pushing yourself to the limit but I was called up on stage as part of he had so many challenges going on so somebody was playing all of the Beatles songs <laughs> like busking every single Beatles song in a room there were some people playing countdown for 24 hours there were people doing physical things sponsored walks sponsored runs and mine was like quite flimsy compared to a lot of the labors of other people but psychologically probably as big <laughs> I think so. people who haven't done stand-up would they're always very impressed by it and it was yeah, there's a psychological leap involved for a lot of people, I think, because that's a reaction I get a lot. And I get, I do get it. I really don't really get nervous before I speak in public. I've never had a problem with that. But I think I was that's like, no bad thing. <laughs> no, it's no bad thing, but it's odd, I suppose. And then um, I definitely have that chemical reaction, though, when you, you're not yourself completely up there. And then you, come, you, you literally come down and you have a come down. Where I was... It was very much your major alliances, your media relations alliances, typically at the bar, at awards dues. That was the way that you marked yourself out amongst hundreds of other PRs. You had to be the most fun or the most interesting. Mm. If you couldn't be the most useful, there Mm. were other ways of building those relationships. And I think that's where the storytelling really 
it was based in that. I think the reason that once I got over the white noise fear of the actual public speaking itself, I found I had quite a lot of material because when you're used to networking and going into rooms where you don't necessarily know anybody, the quickest way to break the ice is to maybe bring up an anecdote that's self-contained so everybody feels comfortable and then they can jump in and talk to you. So I really had a proper little dossier of these that I'd use either on lunches again with journalists that you've never met before part of the media relations you'd have to invite people out and you would never know how it went and sometimes it was like a bad date and you have to pay and you have to stay as long as they want you can't walk away from it and at the end of the bad date you have to tell them it was amazing and then ring them up again in six weeks and do exactly the same thing do you want to do that stay in a relationship with them yeah (laughs) do you want to do that (laughs) yeah like these fun events the PRs were always on. That's the thing that was their job. And as journalists, it was like, well, we could drink, we could take advantage of the fun stuff. Um, but yeah, like if we were drunk and needed a cab, who was getting it for us? You know, that yeah. kind of thing. So yeah, I think it's I think it's tough actually. And it does give you the skills. And I think yeah. in terms of leveling up, going through the ranks of open mic, it was those skills that saw me well. Before I had a solid five minutes, what I did have was I was interested in talking to the promoter. I was interested in hearing about their experiences. because, And it's not in a disingenuous way, but I've kind of been trained to. I've been trained to be interested in people to ask questions. I always stay around because I'm if you're a PR in an event, you're usually either running it or you are considerate of whoever else is running it. So I'd be at the end, like stacking the chairs with them or going, can I buy you a drink? <laughs> and it goes a long way. It goes a long way for people who are putting in a lot of work hmm. to have that recognised. I think it went a long way with people and then they were a lot more supportive of me in terms of giving me stage time, even though I wasn't necessarily ready for it. Then, So it was, yeah, it worked out all right in in those terms it just felt like a natural thing it's just politeness like I'd follow up after gigs and just say thank you so much for having me which I don't think everyone does but it just seems long hours aren't they you're right I think promoters again have this kind of you know people have a certain image of them but just like their their jobs are quite hard and quite lonely and so hard because like yeah because I run nights now and it is it's so much work Mm. and you don't I much prefer to rock up and do my 10 minutes than run the night and worry about is it on time? Are people enjoying it? If they don't get back from the break at the right time, then people might run late and then they won't be able to travel home, which means someone might get up during the headliner. There's so much to consider. Yeah. And people are not always respectful of time because everybody lives in their own universe. So you'd have people pull out at the last minute and you had to be like, well, that's fine. <laughs> but you're, you know it's not fine. So I really, yeah, I feel for all of the ones that were pre pre lockdown plugging away to keep doing that because it in a lot of ways it can be quite thankless the nights are a joy though putting on the nights when when the acts have a good time the audience have a good time it definitely it's worth all the work then and then it strips away all that oh why don't I just turn up at other people's nights why do I do this to myself it's it's always worth it and I'll always say to my husband like if there's a particularly difficult one where it hasn't sold to the last minute or if there's been a lot of change I'll say to my husband right it's the last one I'm doing (laughs) <laughs> just gonna just gonna be an act now I don't need to be a promoter that's too much stuff and then by the end of the night I've already booked in I'm already talking to the acts going right we do this every fortnight so I'll have you back <laughs> what um what is your club night and where is it in um in normal times and zoom times um well I've got one that's local to me that I started by accident because um like a lot of things I was drunk in the pub and I <laughs> spotted a room upstairs in my local Oh, yeah. That looked like it could have comedy in it. So rocked up to the bar person and said, I think you should do a comedy night here. 
and they got the diary out and went, okay, when? <laughs> It makes sense, doesn't it? People love <laughs> was, comedy, bringing money. But I was only like a few months into doing comedy myself. But yeah. I sort of had this idea in my head that I wanted to create the kind of comedy night that I wanted to go to that was easy mm. and safe to get to for women, where the toilet facilities were nice, which sounds ridiculous, but <laughs> you know, a lot you know, comedy's a hustle. So a lot of the rooms that open mic writers can get will be in pubs that aren't necessarily central because they don't get the footfall and they need something like an open mic. But because of that, you'll find yourself in like the dark streets of Dalston that you would never have set foot in before going into a pub that looks like the start of a crime drama. It's like when you see, if you saw Kate from Line of Duty outside this pub, you'd know they were finding a body and you had to go in and you had to go in by yourself. Pass through the pub, go downstairs into a basement or upstairs into a top room and just hope for the best. So I'd already done quite a lot of that in that first few months because mm. I committed to doing 100 gigs in a year to prove a petty point to somebody who said that was the only time you could call yourself a comedian. So I was doing loads of gigging and then having my own night made sense because I could put it on as many times as I want and up my count to get to my 100. So when that when the barwoman said, yep, let's do it, I drunkenly DM'd Jen Brister, who I'd met a couple of times who I absolutely loved, and said, do you want to come and headline this night? I want to make it really nice for women. And she said yes, and we found a date and made it work. So that was live at Limehouse. We managed to run outside of the lockdowns last year so we did some we did um some garden gigs and then some socially distanced gigs there over the summer which was an absolute joy I also co-run with my friend Jess Ashkenazi when an angel called Comedy Kiss so that's a really nice one as well but that's a different arena because the pub's still open and it's technically a designated space but it's an oh. L shape and people are in the pub on the other side, which yeah, is, that's tough. it's a weird vibe that one, but it's a lovely room and it's got staging and it's got all the sound system in. So you just turn up, which is lovely because the Limehouse pub, I have to take my little amplifier on wheels down on a trolley every time and then bring it back. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I've run one in Cardiff as well called Live at Big Moose, which is in a lovely non-for-profit cafe in the centre of Cardiff because Wales's comedy scene is incredible and mm. I was jealous that I wasn't part of it and I wanted to be in on it because I'm from Cardiff and I saw what was going on there and I wanted in so yeah. I couldn't get in via normal means because they didn't want to book someone who'd have to come all the way down to London for an unpaid gig and also there were plenty of people local to South Wales that could do that so I was applying for nights not getting anywhere so again I thought put my own on then when I <laughs> <laughs> and that was absolutely gorgeous as well. It's a really lovely night. Wales is absolutely killing it for comedy at the moment. Over the summer, particularly since lockdown, it's never been more apparent like how generous comedians have been with their time. Because when it first kicked in, I'd just done my 100th gig and I was really excited and I got a room for Fringe and I was talking a good game about it. And everyone who's done their first Fringe and everyone who's a bit more scenery in comedy knew it was probably going to be atrocious. But everyone was so supportive and like, yeah, you're going to love it. And I was gutted then, like everybody else was when it didn't go ahead. But in the grand scheme of what was happening to comedy, it felt like a very small thing. And I felt like I couldn't complain that my open mic career had got curtailed by it. But it was so lovely. Yeah, but you know, you, you know, it's one of those things, isn't it? You never know. It, your problems don't get smaller because other people have got bigger ones. But at the same time, 
it's a livelihood there's yeah, yeah there's such a huge difference I still had my day job it was not it was just uh emotionally yeah. bereft rather than worrying about what my next salary was going to look like so I didn't feel great about complaining about any mm. of that but it started to itch at me a couple of months into the lockdown when it became clear that nothing was going to go back to normal and I messaged a few of them said will you come and talk to me on my Instagram live about comedy I still want to learn even though there aren't mm. any stages to be on I'd love to learn from your experiences can you come and talk to me about what it's like for you and so many said yes. I think everybody I asked said yes. And they were all fully prepared to give up their hour of their time to a very new comedian with like no expectation of anything in return, really. And that kind of generosity I've just seen from the first minute I started right the way through to now. It's there's a lot of keenness, particularly I think with women comedians, there's a lot of keenness to send a ladder down and bring as many people up as you can. With Edinburgh Fringe coming up, you wonder how many people can afford to do it now versus yeah. are, you, are you planning to go to Edinburgh this year or I don't know what it looks like and I don't think it's a funny one isn't it because again it's it depends on who you are as a person I don't know if I'd want to take up space <laughs> for somebody else who had something legitimate to sell that they felt would be you know would genuinely help them advance along other than me just doing it because it's a milestone on the journey that I want to that I want to pass and I don't think I've I don't think I've got a show that's ready <laughs> necessarily tough after this last year isn't it a lot, <laughs> a lot of people have mentioned that what do I write after this year and it's it's hard yeah, nobody wants 100 shows about COVID everybody on Twitter is very quick to say but also that's the one defining experience that everyone can relate to so to leave it out doesn't feel right either and it'll be I'll be really interested to see the mix of that in terms of what people do with the experience and how they tell it but my show all of a sudden does feel quite trivial in the grand scheme of what the world has faced because it was all about pettiness so I'd love to think I can still do it but I think it, was it needs a, a lot of recalibrating I think petty, <laughs> oh my I mean God. All, everyone like telling you know telling I, I think pettiness is quite a universal people people in parks thing. taking pictures of other people's in parks going I can't believe these people are in the park it's like you're there you're in the park as well <laughs> that's the weirdest one it's um, an exercise in people's main character syndrome isn't it it's yeah. you can rationalize anything when it's you but you cannot apply that to other people. It's like, oh, it's fine that I'm out because I know I'm keeping two meters away from people. And I'm pretty sure I had COVID back in January, but you don't know anybody else's story and you're not willing to apply it. (laughs) It's just, I'm the main character here. Of course I'm at the park. Why would I not be at the park? This is about me. I've, yeah, I've experienced so much in this room and nothing feels real anymore because of that. It's like you're in a low budget play and you hear about all the action through this single character, but you're not out there because no one has the money to build the sets for it. So you just all have to experience it through this one person, like receiving letters from the outside. Oh, the war is going on. And yeah, this has been my office. It's been whatever venue I've put it as it's been a podcast studio. It's been a funeral parlor because I've been, I went to a Zoom funeral recently. It's like all in this one space. Yes, this flattening of of experience and existence is really odd, isn't it? Yeah. Um, It's it's like never been more intense, but also never been more remote in terms of how I felt about things. Like little things have become volcanic, but also Mm. things that would be big milestones because they're experienced through the same screen as everything else just don't feel like they've got the same meaning which is 
I guess a lot of people, well, I would hope a lot of people <laughs> feel the same. Yeah, the Comedy Arcade. So it's a panel show. Um, three funny people, not always comedians, um, compete to tell their best stories around random topics. So that's that came about from those conversations I had on Instagram because I really enjoyed asking comedians questions that I hadn't heard them answer before. Because when you're a fan of somebody, it's very easy to fall into listening to them on the same sort of podcast. So if they were comedy podcasts, they were always asked how did you get into comedy? What's the worst heckle you've ever had? And I was like, I want to know something else. I want to know what you were like at school. I want to know all these things. And that's kind of how the idea for the show came about. But um, And with that slight competitive element of like, and like there, there are other people here who are going to be answering it as well. So like, go big. And chipping in. Yeah. So the conversations that they've that they've inspired are conversations that probably would have never happened with people that would never necessarily have been together to have them. And, each episode some some of them have got really really different vibes and we had Robin Ince on it was very literary focused we talked about the way the media skews events whereas we had a really girly one where it was Shappy, Elijah Arden and Suze Kempner and it was almost like this beautiful empowering support group where all the stories were met with love and oh my god I can't believe he did that it was so much yeah it's it's so different every episode. I had one recently with Alice Fraser and Shazi Mirza. And Shazi was talking about how she was a bit of a tear away as a kid and went to was sent to Catholic school by her Muslim parents to try and straighten her out and her experience of that, which she wouldn't necessarily expect to hear on a comedy panel show, but it was fascinating. And Alice Fraser was talking about how she approaches things that have become problematic in later life. So things like Greece. Like if you wanted to pick through the film Greece it could be cancelled a million times over. But if you treat yourself as a time traveller that's just going along and seeing it for what it is, you can kind of reconcile it with yourself. So I did not expect the conversation to get that deep. What do you think about the whole side of, of having to have more of a public persona with your job, I suppose, and the self-promotion side? Well, I lived in South Wales when I first started in PR and most of the national journalists I needed to deal with were in London. So all I really had was email and what was relatively new at the time, Twitter. And so I did build a personality there. I was chipping in on the conversations. I wanted people to know that I knew my stuff. I was making sure I was sharing the right things. So I started curating a version of myself back then. Mark Watson, I was only on his Twitter feed because I got involved in a conversation with him and Katie Brands when everybody was talking about all the tropes that you see in movies. So it's like, I'm a London PR. You'll know me because I'm wearing brand new wellies and I've been sent out to a remote island to do some PR for a corporate, but I will fall in love with a scruffy farmer and change my whole perspective on life. And me, Katie Brandon, him wrote this whole story for this hapless PR girl who's gone up to like the Outer Hebrides. Mm. And both Katie Brand and Mark Watson started following me off yes. the back of that. Yeah, yeah. And if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't have got onto the 26 hour show. None of this would have happened. And I found a lot of positives from being on Twitter. I think it opens my mind. I don't agree that you have to be exposed to everything because I know people say there's a danger in creating your own little echo chamber where everybody agrees with you. I think that I don't consider it an echo chamber because things do get through, but I think it's fine to create a space that you're happy in. Um, Yeah, so tell us about the calves then. Oh, hello. Yes, it's me. Just wanted to say, when we talk about the calves... 
end this bit of the conversation. I should have explained it. We were talking about the Cavendish Arms, which is a pub in Stockwell in South London, and they hold a comedy night called Comedy Virgins. And it's kind of an institution for newbie kind of comedians. And um, at the time that Vix and I were speaking, I was just about to enter a competition they were running um, to get a five-minute spot with pro comedians at the Cambridge Comedy Festival in July. Unfortunately, I was knocked out and didn't didn't make it through to the last 12, but the competition is going on. You can watch the show. It runs a couple of times a week on the Comedy Virgin's Facebook page. So look that up and you can watch a Facebook Live video a couple of evenings a week to see who gets to win. So that's what we're talking about here. Oh, I've got involved with them because they were advertising their new Comedian of the Year competition and they got in touch with me because I've I've become recognized by the industry as somebody who is a flagrant self-promoter there's no shame around self-promotion no I'm I'm happy to to share the secrets and I think that's I'd loved I'd love debunking the myth that it's too opaque and it's too hard or you have to pay three thousand pounds for a PR to get your story out because as you've touched upon anyone can pitch an editor anything now there's never been so much access so I did a story for the independent voices recently which is my first ever byline on comedy because I've been following the voices editor for a long time because I had something of an online relationship with her I felt brave enough to pitch some stuff and I got commissioned and I got to write about the thing that I love so Shirley at the cab said do you know any ways we could promote this are there any journalists you know so I thought i I really love them. I was not in a position necessarily to support them when they did their crowdfunder last summer to stay open and I wanted to pay it forward. So I said, look, let me pick this up and try and help you. So I um, put together the headliners program with them to make sure that we had a pro on each night to encourage people to tune in. And it was brilliant. The numbers were great. There were like over 100 people on them, which for a free Facebook comedy night is it's pretty special. And yeah, put press release together, sent it out, got some coverage. And it was just a really lovely competition to see new talent, people who had started, who loved the idea of stand-up so much, had never put a foot on stage and were still trying to make it work in lockdown. Like they've only ever done stand-up in their bedrooms and they were killing it. It really lit a fire into me. It's like, yeah, if you want it enough, you <laughs> you can you can go out and get it. But they really felt strongly they wanted to do the competition online because they knew it was something like, it, it is another rite of passage for comedians because you shout about it a lot if you've been a finalist or a semi-finalist. It's just, it's a nice accolade to have. And it was one of the probably more inclusive ones on the map. There was no barrier to entry. And I think that's what the CAV does well. They don't cherry pick the acts that they know will go down well with the audience. It's a completely open book. You could be doing your first gig. You could be doing your 100th gig. You've got as much of a shot as getting on the stage as everybody else. So they made the competition work and I stayed in touch with them. And um yeah, I'm really enjoying working with them and they've just been brilliant. So what they've done to kit the cab out, the tech they've got is extraordinary. They've really doubled down investing to make sure that you can have as close to a stage experience as they can get it. And they do, they're working it now so you can go and perform in the cab to a Zoom audience. So I did that a couple of weeks ago with a new material night. The difference it makes being on a stage behind a microphone is unreal. I never wanted to be the one that set that up in my house. I just couldn't. I, I admire the people that can do it. For me, that is a cringe level too far. Setting my mic stand up in the kitchen next to my fruit bowl. It's not for me. So yeah, 
I just admire everything they've done and they've really everything they've done is wholeheartedly to keep comedy going they could have just offered the space out to pro comedians to use because it's the tech setup is brilliant so pro comedians would want to use it but they've kept it really pure and really true to whoever wants to go can step up and have a go so they have um got together with Cambridge Comedy Festival to create some stage space for brand new comics alongside all the pros. So they're running a competition to um, give that space to somebody to be five minutes on a pro stage in front of what is going to be an extraordinary crowd. So (laughs) it's just so cool. And those are the kind of things that you don't forget. And they're the kind of opportunities that everybody who's new needs because there are some people that are ready quicker than everybody else as well and you know it when you see it there's nothing more galling but also more inspiring than when you see someone who absolutely kills their sets and then at the end the MC comes on and says and that was their fourth gig you're like what (laughs) but it's yeah it's I'm excited so I'm excited to see you I'm gonna be there on Tuesday so can we have your three top tips? <laughs> yeah. So the first thing is um, no never kills you. Unless it's no, I can't give you this kidney or I can't I'll give you this life-saving treatment. Like no, if you ask to be on a bill, if you ask to be on a podcast, getting left on red or getting a no back, you're going to be fine. And they might say yes. And that's really exciting. So I've got to do loads of gigs that a lot of people wouldn't even have bothered trying for. And I shouldn't have probably bothered trying for. And they had space that day or someone dropped out or for whatever reason, they liked the look of my Instagram and the stuff that I've been working on, I got in. So if there's something that you feel like you're a good fit for podcast wise or comedy wise, if you're a comedian or anything, a job. So I once, (laughs) I once rejected a rejection for a job um that I emailed them my CV and my covering letter and they said that other candidates had more experience than me so didn't give me an interview I emailed them back and said I disagree look at my experience again and the guy rang me back and said you're absolutely right we didn't look far enough down your CV and I got to interview with them I didn't get the job but what was the worst that could happen they'd already said no to me so there was no (laughs) there was no there was no risk in taking a punt and going I disagree with you I want this job and the more you push back like that and get a response like that it really builds you up that's brilliant same with like asking for a pay rise and asking for more money when you've got a new job on like I did that once years ago sweating I think my ass was sweating and I didn't know my ass cheeks could sweat and I did it because I got offered a promotion but with a woeful salary increase and in a fit of pettiness and stress, I emailed the finance director and said, I want to talk to you about this. Went along with a load of evidence that I thought I was worth more than that. And I got the pay rise and I learned a lesson then because he could have said no and I would have walked away, no worse off. But they actually respected that I'd done it and they said that. And then I was able to tell loads of other people that had got the meager pay rise to go and do it as well. So I became like a one-person union. <laughs> that place I was working. So yeah, no, never kills anybody. If it's something that you think's for you, give it a go. Take take the shot. Um, you don't have to choose a career. So a lot of people talk to me about when I'm going to leave PR behind for comedy. I don't think I ever will. There might be a day where I do more comedy-based PR or maybe I'll do more entertainment PR alongside the promoting and the comedy stuff. I love doing both. I love the freedom of what I'm doing in the new space that I never dreamed I could be able to do. And also I love the 
the thing that I've built. I've been building this career over 12 years and the skills that I've learned in that career have been applicable to the, everything that I've done in my life. And I think I would be poorer as a comedian trying to make it without it. And similarly, I think I'm better as a PR because of the comedy, because I've got this other interest. I've got this, this reason to switch off, but I've also got the confidence that I didn't have before to speak up, to present, to put myself forward for things that people respect that. They respect that new energy. So I think it's really enriched me in that way. And also don't think you haven't got time to do something that you love. So I would have told you, like we said at the start, I would have told you I didn't have time for Roller derby, I think, was the last thing that I thought could be my thing. And it was two hours twice a week. And I was so focused on my career at the time and my downtime. I didn't I didn't think I had time to do that. And I now probably do about 15 hours of comedy and comedy admin on top of, top of my full-time job. <laughs> and I don't even feel it. But it's like, I hate that phrase. Oh, find something you love and you'll never work a day in your life. I disagree with that. I don't mind though. I don't mind putting in the work because it's worth it. And I think if I'd known how much it was going to take over my life, I might not have gone to that funny women <laughs> session. Because <laughs> if someone had told me this is the way that it was going to go, I would have found that stressful and overwhelming. But I'm glad I took that single step. And I think I think it's Sophie Hagen that said, I, I don't know if it's in their book or not, about going to the gym. People get into their heads about going to the gym, about people looking at them. And their advice was just go go to the gym. You don't have to stay there. Just go, just go, go to the door. If you get to the door and that's as far as you want to go, you can walk away, go to the machine. If you don't want to go on the machine, you can just walk away at any time. So keep that in mind. Like don't take the first step because you've already decided what's going to happen in a year, what's going to happen in two years time, because you genuinely don't know. If someone had told me when I made that new year's resolution to do the speak, the the speaking course, so I could be a better corporate speaker that two years later I would be, doing a podcast, trying to find stage time all over the UK, I would have laughed in your face. So if there's something you think that you might want to do, it's similar to the second point, don't overthink it. Take the step because you can always, you can always take the step back. Nothing is set in stone. Well, thanks so much to Vic Slayton for being my guest on the new revived freelance pod. Um, yeah, it was, it was so much fun to talk about comedy and to hear about someone else's route into it and how they make it work with their day job thanks for sticking with this podcast despite the uh the long absence i hope you enjoyed this episode the socials are all the same as ever i've got them all down in the show notes yeah that's it from me for this episode there are going to be a few more so look out for them and uh speak to you next time bye